0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We will begin reading in verse 35 here in just a moment. If you are with the three- and four-year-old class, you guys are dismissed to your classes. Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 Through 37 is where we will be. If you're new with us this morning, we have been journeying through the Gospel of Mark uh, since Easter of 2021. We're hoping to finish in September. And uh, we have recently been, been journeying through this moment in the story, which is somewhat climactic. I mean, the whole story has been moving toward Jerusalem where Christ would be crucified. In fact, uh, we've seen chapter after chapter where Jesus is preparing his disciples for this moment. Uh, Even in his geographical moving, he's been moving to Jerusalem, and he's been warning that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests will be the ones to arrest him and put him on the cross. And now Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and the very first thing he does in Mark chapter 11 is he goes straight to the temple, straight to the center of the power in Jerusalem, and he starts to flip tables. And he starts to drive people out, and he starts to proclaim that the religious people had turned the temple of God into a den of robbers. That was day one in Jerusalem. No wonder that it would just be a week It would just take a week for him to be crucified. On day two, he comes back into the temple, and he begins to teach. But not only does Jesus begin to teach, he begins to be sort of verbally attacked. At this point in the story, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus has just been put through the ringer with the religious elite in the temple, He's been challenged and questioned by the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And each group tried to trap Jesus in his words, hoping to bring condemnation to him, hoping to humiliate him, hoping to discredit him by by his failure to answer a question or by him answering the question wrongly. But with every question and with every challenge, Jesus only proved all the more his own wisdom and authority. In fact, in Jesus' last interaction in Mark chapter 12, verse 34, look at what it says. <clears throat> Mark 12, 34, look at what it says. Jesus saw that this man answered wisely and said, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Because every time they asked him a question in an attempt to humiliate Jesus, they ended up being the ones humiliated. (laughs) They ended up proving all the more what they were trying to disprove, which is that Jesus speaks the very words of God. But that did not mean that Jesus was done talking in the temple. It just meant they were done talking in the temple. Now that he'd brilliantly maneuvered all their attacks, now Jesus, in verse 35 that we're about to read, kind of goes on the offensive. Verse 35 says Jesus began to teach in the temple. He had proved himself wiser than every authority in the temple, and apparently now he had a listening audience. People had gathered to hear the wisdom of this teacher. So now Jesus has the floor and so Jesus wants to now ask a question of his own. So that question begins in verse 35. So let's read uh, Mark chapter 12 verses 35 through 37 and then let's pause and pray for understanding. Mark 12 verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he a son? And the great throng heard him gladly all right let's let's go to the Lord in prayer for for understanding of all this.. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you, <clears throat> recognizing our deep need for your grace when it comes to understanding true things about you, about your world, about the story from Genesis to Revelation. God, here in the story, we, we see people who, who had uh, much of the scriptures, who were standing in the temple of God in all of its magnificence, who spent hours a day studying, but who missed Jesus when he stood in the flesh face to face in front of them. So God, help us not to do that this morning. Give us grace to see the beauties of this text and, and really of the whole Bible this morning. We pray, help us to worship you for who you really are, not for who we uh, wish you to be or think you to be, but Father, for who you are. We, we pray, speak by the power of your Spirit in this moment, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's Jesus' turn to ask some questions, and Jesus' aim is to make one particular passage of Scripture the focus of the question. But the first thing I want you to notice is how Jesus references a Scripture in this passage. He references Psalm 110, which we'll look at in a minute. But notice how Jesus introduces the passage of Scripture for discussion in verse 36. He says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. Now Jesus aims to discuss Psalm 110, but before he quotes the psalm, Jesus affirms a very core doctrine of the Christian faith, that that David, when he sat down to write, that he sat down to write while being in the Spirit, that, that is, consumed by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Jesus is not quoting this psalm in this moment to challenge what it says. He's quoting to bring clarity to its meaning, because because this writing that he quotes was written by David, but it was also written by God. By the physical hand of David, but by the infinite mind of God, these words made it onto a page. And so if you're, if you're note-taking this morning, this is the first truth I want you to see just in even the way Jesus talks. And that's this. Jesus affirmed God's inspiration of the Bible. Jesus affirmed God's inspiration of the Bible. So if you're, if you're new to St. Rose Community Church, this is a great Sunday To attend because this this point that we're making is foundational to who we are and everything that we do in this church. We believe with our whole hearts that the sovereign, that there is a sovereign God ruling over all of the universe, and that this God is not silent. This God speaks. In fact, creation itself is a result of divine design spoken into existence. That that the reason that light is entering our eyes this morning is because God said, let there be light. That his words not only have meaning, they have power. Words were God's idea. Language was God's idea. Letters and grammar and punctuation and literature was God's idea. Humanity did not come up with that all on their own. God chose to communicate Himself and all of His infinites to sinful humanity through words. God chose to speak to individuals throughout history, like David, and and he spoke to them and he led them to write down those words. By the power of the Spirit of God, people wrote down words from the Almighty on stones on parchments, on papyrus, and those words contained meaning, and they would reveal the plan of God, the purpose of God, the character of God for the people of God to hold on to, cling to, and read when they're tempted to forget. The Bible is a collection of those words written by the physical hand of men inspired by the unfathomable mind of God. Written words on a page where God's plan and it's a good plan men who were audibly commissioned by the resurrected jesus confirm this truth with their own writings consider the popular passages that affirm this second timothy chapter 3 verse 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction for training in righteousness. Consider Peter, who sat at the feet of Jesus for three years as he considered what the scriptures really are. He says in verse 19, and, and get this, this is after Peter says, we were there on the mountain of transfiguration. We heard the voice from heaven. I mean, we saw it with our own eyes. But then in verse 19, he says, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed We have scriptures that are more reliable even than our experience to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here this morning. And you are skeptical of this claim. I mean, how do you really know what Peter said is true? How how do we know what Paul claimed is true? How do we know scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer to that question, I mean, that, that can be complex. We could spend an entire session this morning on that. I mean, I believe the Bible is inspired by God because Jesus believed the Old Testament was inspired by God. And Jesus gave the authority to the apostles to speak on his behalf, resulting in the New Testament. Well, why do I believe the Bible? Because I believe Jesus. Well, why do you believe Jesus? Because Jesus really and truly historically worked miracles recorded in historical documents that has changed the entire world. He was really killed, really rose from the dead, and really got up on the third day and said, you can have eternal life too. Well, why do you believe that? Well, the eyewitness testimonies of his followers were consistent with one another. They preached his resurrection, even though being persecuted to the point of death, even with the most powerful empire in the world trying to crush Christianity, it only exploded into existence and spread like wildfire. And I'm standing here today, a Christian, 2,000 years later. I don't just blindly believe in the truth of Christianity because I was raised in a Christian home. I see legitimacy of the historical claims of Christ. The story of the Bible makes sense of the story of the world better than any worldview or religion in the history of the world. But more than that, the same Holy Spirit that David was in to write down words inspired by God is the same Holy Spirit that has worked a miracle in me to see the beauty of the Bible and to believe that it's true i cannot unsee what i've seen and that i can argue for it logically all day long but i cannot unsee what i've seen and that is a miracle my believing is not a blind believing with no rational reasoning but but my believing is not a result of mere rational reasoning. My believing was, and still, is a miracle of God's work in my life. So if you are here this morning and you don't believe that a man named David wrote things down in the Holy Spirit, a man named Mark wrote things down in the Holy Spirit, and Peter and Paul wrote things down in the Holy Spirit, I do encourage you to study this book for yourselves, to use all your rational reasoning that you got to try to know whether it's true or not, but to also, as you read, to pray that if this book is inspired by a divine mind, that that God would open your eyes, that the author of the book, the divine author of the book, would give you the understanding to read this book. Jesus affirmed God's inspiration of the Bible, and if there's any chance this book really is from God, you would be a fool not to read it for yourself and seek to understand it. But just because the Bible is miraculously inspired by God, just because men wrote things down under the influence of the Spirit, it does not mean that we don't have to do the hard work of reading and thinking and studying to understand what's here. God used human agents. To write his words. I mean, you think about that. This this book that I hold in my hands. I mean, God could, could have just said, book be written. And everything would have been written perfectly. But God didn't do that. He used very natural means to accomplish a very supernatural end. He used David's knowledge of the languages. He used the, the biblical author's experiences. He even used their penmanship to write these words down. And now God aims to use our, in this room, our reading and our thinking and our praying and our careful study to help us understand. We have to utilize all the natural God gifts, the gifts that God has given us to reap the supernatural benefits of understanding eternal revelation from the Lord. There's a false dichotomy that is common in in many Christian circles. That is, there's these two options that that many people believe are against one another that separates spiritual things from physical and tangible things. As if there's this, some sort of mysterious spiritual wind world and then there's the physical real world we live in. We want to think that the spirit only operates in feelings and mystery and intangible impressions of mysterious thought that lead me to do something I wouldn't have done. But that's a false dichotomy. When you look at what the spirit does, the Spirit uses tangible, physical means to accomplish God's work in us and through us. He uses our study and our thinking and our praying and the study, thinking, praying of other church members. If we want to lean into the work of the Spirit this morning, we don't clear our minds and hum like the people in yoga or Buddhist do to try to get in touch with some God out there. No, 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 we don't clear our minds, we fill our minds. We don't avoid deep study, we dive into it in prayerful reliance on the Spirit of God. And I think that's exactly what Jesus wants his hearers to do in this context. Jesus wants to bring one passage before his hearers for a deeper consideration It's not that the people in the room didn't know this passage. It's that they had not considered it as deeply as Jesus would have liked. So he wants to ask them some questions of a familiar text. So look back at Mark chapter 12, verse 35. What's the question he wants to ask of this psalm? As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say, That the Christ is the son of David, verse 35. And then he quotes the verse, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37. Now, David calls him Lord. So, how is he David's son? Now, all right, that second time, that second pass through probably didn't bring any more clarity to you. Uh, you, have to, you have to read things several times, and that's, that's okay. That section may still be confusing, but let's think it through. This is the question he's asking. How can the scribes, the people that know the Bible really well, say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Now, to understand the question, you've got to know the background here. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I did not know that until I was probably like in my 20s. I don't know. It's not his last name. It's a title, That means something very important in the Bible. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. More literally, the two words simply mean anointed one or chosen one. And and the people in the room there, in, in the temple, they believed that the Christ would be the one to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. That he would establish an unending kingdom on earth. That the Christ would be the promised son of King David of a kingdom that would never be dethroned. The promise shows up as early as 2 Samuel chapter 7, but it appears over and over and over again. And so in order to even get the question, you need to get the longing of the people's hearts for that Christ, for that Messiah. This is is what they hoped for. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 God makes a promise to David and says, King David over Israel, and he says this. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I'll establish his kingdom. And that's okay, all good and dandy, great. You know, he'll have a son who will be a king. But then 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 says this. And, the, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever now now the attention is peaked the ears are perked up wait a kingdom that will never fall i don't know if you know this god but there's a lot of enemy nations out there always trying to topple kingdoms a kingdom that will never ever fall and then the the rest of the old testament hopes for this this may seem a little strange but we're going to have some 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 church uh, member uh, let 's have some some church member involvement this morning because what I want us to do I just want us to sit under the scriptures okay to get the longing that the people felt and I want to read some passages, but I, I need some good readers um, and i 'm going to call on some members that I know you 're good readers and you 'll be confident and so if you think that you might be a good reader, I looked at Claire because she 's like a professional reader she 's an English teacher. <laughs> So just prepare your heart, because I'm about to ask you to read some scriptures for us, okay? So I want everybody, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is a, a prophecy written down by Isaiah in the spirit, about this Christ, this Messiah, who would come and set up a kingdom. And Claire's going to read it for us.
1: For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.
0: Amen. Pass that to Ashley. Ashley's another school teacher. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And read for me verses 1 through 10. And notice, notice as you read, notice how this future kingdom is safe from more than just enemies out there, like human enemies. Notice how the whole creation is, is changed under the rule of this future Christ.
1: There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hands on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Mm. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious.
0: Mm. Amen. One more. Turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. Roll, you're within reach, brother. Sure. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 22 through 31. And this is after Ezekiel has talked about all the bad kings that have come, all the really terrible kings, how the, how the promise seems to have fallen because there is no Christ, there's no Messiah, the kingdom's in shambles. Like, who's going to care for us? Because it doesn't really seem to be working out, oh Lord. And then Ezekiel comes in writing these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. So, verses 22 through 31 of Ezekiel 34.
2: Therefore, Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David... A Prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. there shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them. But they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid." I will raise up for them a garden of renown and they shall and they shall I lost my place. I will raise them up a garden of renown and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land nor bear the shame of the gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I the Lord no more their god. I am with them and they the house of Israel are my people says the Lord God. You are my flock the flock of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. Amen.
0: This is the son of David that everyone was waiting for the son of David who would take the throne and usher in not just a new kingdom, not just a place where, where uh, other nations are weaker, but a place that didn't have pain anymore or suffering, a kingdom without all the brokenness. But there remains still to this day as Jesus stood in the temple <clears throat> amidst all the corruption of the temple amidst the the lame and the poor and the broken people outside the temple pleading for money as people entered in. There remained a mystery about this future son of David because it hadn't happened yet. How could he establish an unending kingdom where creation itself would no longer be hostile? None of David's uh, sons had done this, even remotely done this. And so Jesus asked them a question. He wants to challenge their understanding of who this son of David will be. So he asked a question about a specific psalm that David wrote about this future son of David. Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is unique. We actually did two whole sermons on it a couple years ago uh, in our Advent series. Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. It is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the book of Hebrews. And I think it's likely quoted so much because of Jesus' teaching on it in this moment. For a long time, the Jews had been confused by a phrase in this psalm. As David talks about this future king, there's a phrase there where, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, King David's writing the psalm. David references the Lord in all caps, meaning Yahweh, God, the one true God. But then he references Yahweh speaking to a second Lord, someone who is also David's Lord. Lord, little caps, not all big caps. God is speaking to someone who who David calls Lord. But who in the world is David's Lord? Who's king's David's Lord? David was the king. He was the anointed king of Israel. There's no one above him in rank. Yet David was looking forward to someone who David believed would be greater than him. Now, in an honor culture like this, it would have been very strange for the older to call the younger Lord. It would have been odd for David to refer to one of his future sons as his Lord. So the question was: okay. Who's the Lord in this text? Who who is David referring to? Who would David esteem so highly as to call him Lord? This mystery Lord, not only is David calling him Lord, but in the psalm, the mystery Lord (coughs) is going to be invited to sit at the right hand of God, The, the right hand being symbolic of power and authority, of representation of the one true God. Only those who could speak and act for the king could sit at the right hand. Here was Yahweh, one true God, inviting someone who was going to be David's Lord to sit at the right hand of power. He would have authority over every created thing in that position, but not only that, God promises to make all his enemies his footstool so every rebel competing kingdom would be under this Lord's feet. And no offspring of David ever accomplished this promise And so for centuries, scholars debated who in the world is the mystery Lord that the Lord is speaking to in this psalm. And so after thwarting every one of his enemies in theological dialogue in the temple, Jesus just wants to add to the discussion. So he reads the psalm, right? Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus just asks a question. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he... Also, how is he also David's son? Now, Jesus asks the question because Jesus knows that Jesus is the answer. And this is one of those times where the Sunday school answer, Jesus, would have been appropriate. Jesus is the answer to this conundrum because Jesus was born an offspring of David, according to human lineage. But Jesus' lineage was not just a human one. Jesus' Jesus's birth was also a divine one. A miracle birth, where, where that in one person you had Jesus, both son of David, but you had Jesus, son of God. That's why he's David's Lord, because he existed before David ever existed. Listen to the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth in Luke 1, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What's interesting about this moment in Mark is that one of the only people to have gotten this so far in the story was actually as Jesus entered into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 10, and it's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Outside of the city gates, outside of the temple, there's a blind guy that just hears that Jesus is passing by in Mark chapter 10, 47, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, why would the blind man be so interested in the son of David? Because when the son of David takes the throne, there'll be no more blindness, right? I mean, because the world will be restored to what it was. Son of David, have mercy on me. There's irony happening here in the Gospel of Mark that the blind man outside of the city gates knows who Jesus is, but the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple staring at the Bible every day can't get it when they're face to face with him. The Jewish of the elite of the temple read their bibles they knew that the promised one was going to be a son of david but they didn't understand how the promised one was going to be much much more than a son of david jesus the messiah christ and king of the world is the only one who david could speak of as lord now we could make a lot of theological points from this text, from Psalm 110. We could spend a lot of time here. We could talk about the humanity and divinity of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus over all things, the coming day where all his enemies are put under his feet. But I just want to pause and consider what Jesus is claiming about himself when it comes to the scriptures. This is truth number two this morning. Truth number two is this. Jesus claimed to be the interpretive key of the Bible. The Bible. The Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees all read their Bible and missed the point because Jesus is the point. By rejecting Jesus, they rejected the key which unlocked the meaning of inspired texts for over hundreds of years. Jesus understood the Bible to be written in such a way that everything from the Old Testament pointed to this moment of his life, death, resurrection for the sins of The world. After Jesus rose from the dead, he went on a walk on the road to Emmaus with two disciples that had heard that there was an empty tomb, and they're confused about the empty tomb, and they're wondering together what happened and how the tomb could be empty. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to them in verse 26, he walks alongside them, them not even recognizing him, and he says, Was it not necessary? That the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then what does Jesus do? Beginning with Moses, first five books, and all the prophets, he interpreted them all, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Standing with his disciples after the resurrection, Jesus says in Luke 24, These are my words I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. If you're new to reading the Bible, you don't know how to read the Bible, here's a simple uh, way to understand a biblical text. Ask what the connection is to Jesus. Ask what the connection is to the story of Jesus. How's this text preparing me to understand why Jesus came? Or how's this text urging me to live in light of Jesus' coming? He's the center of the story, the manifestation of the glory, the accomplisher of our salvation. He's everything the Old Testament pointed to. Reading the Old Testament should cause worship for you. Because in Genesis, when Adam, our representative, sins, and chooses unrighteousness, you read that story knowing that we now have a new representative, one who didn't choose unrighteousness, but one who chose righteousness and now represents all of humanity in his perfection. When you read the curse of death in Genesis 3, you know what the cure is a glorious resurrection that is to come. Jesus is the new and better Abel, slaughtered by his brothers, but whose blood speaks a better word of salvation, forgiveness, and resurrection. He's the blessing of all families to the earth, promised to Abraham. The new and better Joseph, betrayed by his family, only to rise to a throne to bring healing to the land. He's the Passover lamb who sheds his blood so that we might escape the wrath of God. The better Moses who stands in the gap between sinful people and a holy God. He's the temple itself because in his body the full of God was pleased to dwell. The new and better Joshua who conquers the enemies of God and leads us to the promised land. The good shepherd of his people who laid down his life for his sheep rather than taking advantage of his sheep. He's the better high priest who has no sin of his own to atone for. The better sacrifice, no blemish, no spot, no need for a second one. He's the new and better Hosea who purchased the wayward bride which is you not with silver and gold but with his own blood. The new and better Jonah, who goes down into the belly of the earth for three days, not because of his sin, but because of your sin, and then rises again to offer forgiveness to the nations. The perfect prophet who doesn't just speak words from God. He is the word of God in the flesh. The king of kings who sits on an eternal throne. The ancient of days who will come again on the clouds. David's Lord who will one day make his enemies his footstool. Everything points to Jesus. And one day, Jesus will bring the story to completion. Truth number three, and our final truth truth this morning Jesus will complete the Bible's story. One day, Psalm 110 will become a full and final reality. Look at Psalm 110. It'll be on the screen. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. David's writing about the future son of David, the future Lord to come, but I just want you to listen to the poetic language of the completion of the story that this person will bring. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of this future one, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord's at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What what do we learn about the end of the story from this psalm? That Jesus will be enthroned over all the earth that his people will be there offering themselves freely, freely to him, that all his people will be dressed in holiness, that all his people will cover the land like the dew in the morning sun, glistening in glory and beauty. He will be our eternal priest, our eternal king, who brings us back into the presence of God. All his enemies will be destroyed. There will be a time of total peace. The fighting will be over, so much so that there, there's no fighting, but he'll have time to drink by the brook and lift up his head in a sigh of relief because of the story of Jesus' triumph over sin and death and devil is over. The Bible is one big story about a good world created by a good God being corrupted by sin and about a Jesus who would die for his peoples to overcome the corruption. Are you a part of the story of the Bible? Or do you treat the Bible like a little tool in your toolbox to give you enough encouragement so that you can be the starring role of your own little story. The takeaways this morning are simple. Two two takeaways. Takeaway number one, learn the Bible's story. It's a miraculous one. 66 books, 35 authors, several different genres, multiple languages, harmoniously united to to tell one story. Story. Christians throughout history have burnt at the stake so that you might hear and understand the words that we just got to read freely this morning. I was reading last night, just to fire me up, I was reading the story of the man who first translated the Bible into English and tried to get English Bibles into the hands of English-speaking people in England in the 1500s. In the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church in England outlawed any translation of the Bible into English because it's a dangerous thing for the people to have truth in their hands because they'll recognize the falsehood. They didn't want any man reading the Bible, afraid that the people could read it for themselves and see that the authority structures of the church were actually corrupt. William Tyndale decided that it was going to be his life's work to get the Bible in English. In fact, two-thirds of the Bible that you read still have phrases that were translated exactly as they are from William Tyndale in the 1500s. William Tyndale was executed by strangling after 18 miserable months in prison because he would not relent in his mission to not only have the Bible translated to English, but then to smuggle English Bibles to the hands of the people. And he's not the only one. I I was reading just a little short biography of him and just listen to these real names of real people who died trying to get the Bible into the hands of the people in 1531 and 1532. These are people that helped smuggle. These are people that helped translate. These are people that, that helped him in the mission John Frith burnt at the stake. Richard Bayfield burnt at the stake. John uh, Tokusbury whipped and had his brow squeezed with ropes until blood came from the eyes. He was racked until he was lame, then burnt at the stake. James uh, Bainman burnt at the stake. Thomas Bilney, Thomas Dusgate, John Bent, Thomas Harding, Andrew Hewitt, Elizabeth Barton, names that you've never even heard in your life that died so that you could hear the most magnificent story in the universe, and then join it and be a part of it. I urge you to give your life to knowing this book, but more than that, I urge you to give your life finding your place in the story that it tells. There's something unique about humanity. There's something unique about humanity that we find joy in great stories. We're intrigued by characters And the conflict between good and evil and the hope of restoring what's been broken. There's something very natural about the wonder in my son Owen's eyes as he reads about Aslan, the great lion who will defeat the wicked white witch. And I think that that is very natural to him because we were made to participate in a story that is bigger than ourselves. And I think all stories are just shadows of the greatest story that God is completing in Jesus, and I believe we've been invited to play a role, which is takeaway number two, find your place in the Bible's story. The fact that Jesus is the interpretive key should humble you, because what that means is, is that you're not the main character. You're not the interpretive key to the Bible. As much as we try to make ourselves, we're not the starring role Jesus is and when we read the Bible we pray things like show us Christ when we evangelize we don't declare come behold us we say come to behold the wondrous mystery we've seen in the story of God Jesus is the star of the story and he's the star of our story right I mean you want to know what's most important about me it's the fact that he saved me that he gave me eternal life, called me to a mission. He gets all the glory. But but that doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play, right? I want to close with one last scripture. We read a lot of scripture this morning. felt kind of sinful not to read a lot of scripture on a sermon about scripture. We're going to, we're going to end on one scripture. And I just want you to see how this logic is even playing out in Peter's mind. And how the big story of the Bible just just leads him to act on behalf of what he knows and what he's seen and what he's read and so look at first peter chapter 1 verse 10 we'll close with this transition he makes first 1 peter 1:10 1, listen concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, speaking with the prophets who were searching when is this Christ going to come, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Do you hear that? The prophets from a thousand years ago in writing these down were serving You. (laughs) that you might have things they didn't have. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. I mean, this story blows the socks off the angels. Verse 13, so there's the big story. Man, verse 13, therefore... Preparing your minds for action. Being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, get ready for action now and keep being ready for action till the end of the story when Jesus is revealed, right? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be an idiot. Don't act like you're the star of the show. Don't, don't act like this little tiny world of yours is all that there is. Don't, don't be disobedient like you did in your former ignorance. The Bible calls people ignorant sometimes. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. 1 Peter goes on throughout the entire book to help people suffer well. Telling them that this little moment is just a a small piece of what real reality is. The big story that Christ will complete on the last day. So let's, let's pray that we will respond in faith to the message of inspired scriptures. Lord, we long for the day where all your enemies will be made your footstool. We long for the completion of the story, but Father, we pray that even now that we would play a role in what you are doing in bringing this saving message to the ends of the earth. God, we pray that you would help protect us from our former ignorance. Give us a love for the Bible. And Give us a love for joining the story that it tells. God, we love you. We pray now, help us to respond and worship in Jesus' name. Amen.